Grounding properly can solve many problems in coding. In fact, it's the difference between being a master of tasks or being a servant to a taskmaster. How will you ever know your codings are good until you get it just right? Fear not the Reaper, my friends. We've got John Cole, president of Parker Ionics, to decipher the code to great ground. He answers your live questions from my group posts on Facebook. Plus, we get a hat tip from the market maker about our podcast and the impression it's making in the industry. Get ready to level up your powder coder game. Let me turn on my camera here so you can see who I am and where I am. <laughs> there you are. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good morning to you right now, right? Yeah, it's 10 o'clock. All right. All and right. it's like, what, the end of the day for you, right? Oh, but yeah. Well, I've got a 7 o'clock uh, um, Zoom call with Japan tonight. So oh, I my goodness. For a while. <laughs> yeah, they're like a whole, well, here in Hawaii, it's like, when I went there, it was like a day yep. and a half difference. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So right weird. now we're we're 13 hours time difference. So when I call at seven o'clock tonight, it'll be eight o'clock Friday morning for them. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm super stoked to have you on the show. So let me get right to it. I want to introduce John Cole from Parker Ionics. Um I actually attended, because we're PCI members, and I know you through PCI, I actually attended a grounding uh, seminar, webinar you had a couple weeks ago, and I found it so interesting, your slides, and and had so many more questions and stuff. And I know in that webinar, there were line coders and maybe some batch coders and stuff, custom coders. Uh, My audience here at the podcast is mostly guys you know that are kind of maybe early on in their uh operations uh maybe experiencing production issues or operational issues process issues and stuff so um i found a lot of your visuals really good so hopefully you know and in fact what i'll do right now is i'll allow you to uh share your screen um, in case you do want to share some of your images from your webinar, um, I think the visuals you presented there were really good. Of course, I let me, let me find those real quick. That sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Um, and while you're doing that, I want to share my screen right now because I want to bring up your website so that we give you some some kudos um, and stuff about Parker and uh, um, so let me. do that I got to so, figure out how to change screens here because now I can't see you but I can see my presentation on my screen so 
Right. And I think I just have to allow you, but right now I'm sharing my screen so we can, can you see Parker Ionics, your website? I sure can. Yeah. So I just um, kind of want to introduce you a little bit. I know you're the president of Parker Ionics. Again, so happy to have you on the show and have you share your deep knowledge of powder coatings in general, maybe get you on a couple more times after this to talk about different, we always end up thinking, hey, we could talk about this next time. Um, so if you have a good time, please come back. Uh, but I, I do know you through uh, the Powder Coating Institute. We've been, I've attended a few meetings with you in there and stuff. Uh, but tell me how you got started, uh, just maybe a brief description of your industry background and uh, what you like about powder coatings, um, how you ended up at Parker, that sort of stuff. I'd be happy to do that. So first of all, I've been at this since 1972. I'm an old guy. <laughs> I spent 35 years with a company called Colleen Corporation where one of our products was uh, paint stripping molten salt. So I spent 35 years taking paint off of parts and since 2007, I've been putting paint on parts. So I know both sides of the equation there. Um, and, and with my time at Colleen, trying to justify the high cost of molten salt for stripping, which by the way, is still the best way to strip paint. But uh, um, I really tuned in on how important ground was. And, and, and a lot of the presentation that I do um, a lot of the data and it comes from some uh, ground testing we did at Colleen Corporation. Yeah, but I found that compelling. I found that very compelling, that testing. I, I'm telling you, it, the, the data is there. We, you know, we, so I'm a ground fanatic. I'll start out with that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I preach ground when I teach classes. One of the first things I say is in this presentation, you're gonna hear me say the word ground at least 50 times. And then I went on and did the presentation. At the end of it, one of the students in the back of the class raised her hand and she said 53. And I, you know, it'd been a while since I said, I'm gonna say it at least 50. I said, <laughs> what do you mean? She says, you said ground 53 times. <laughs> so so um, in fact, one of my presentations is called ground ad nauseum because <laughs> In my humble opinion, and based on my experience both at Colleen and at Parker Ionics, I personally think there, there's nothing more important to powder coating success than proper grounding. You can paint, you can powder coat without ground. I can show you how to do it without ground. Um, powder will stick. It doesn't stick effectively or efficiently. Um, and it, but. I mean, without ground, you can still get powder to, to stick. And that's why when people are running their lines with no ground, and I can prove it to them, they got no ground, they're not bothered because paint is still sticking to the parts and they're getting product out. The product they're getting out has film thicknesses all over the map. Um, and, wow. and oh, by the way, in doing that, they've wasted a heck of a lot of powder because the transfer efficiency is terrible right. with bad ground. Right, yeah. And maybe we can talk about what is too much or not enough or whatever. I mean, remember that most of my uh, followers are probably batch coders. I'm not sure we have line coders. So let's keep that in mind when we're going over your slides. Do you want to just start getting into them now? Well, let me see. Yeah, I can let me see. My problem is I'm trying to figure out how so, I can. 
I'm going to I think you go down to the toolbar and then there's in the in the uh, Zoom meeting and then you click screen share. Oh, there and we go. I've, I got you back. I didn't have you for a minute. So now you're yeah. back. So I can do screen share. Yeah, I've allowed you to share it. And let's see. Now, are you seeing okay. my yeah. presentation? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, so, looks great. So, you know, here's how I start. I, I have a mantra, ground is important. Ground is very important. Ground <laughs> is see, extremely important. And then I think the next slide, for, it's arguably the most important <laughs> aspect of successful powder coating. And I, and I capitalize successful because again, as I said, you can powder coat without ground, but it's not viewed as successful powder coating. And I do, I mean, this, talk is really aimed at the batch guys. It's aimed at the DIY guys. I have a really uh, strong part of my heart for the guys that are just starting out, starting their own shops up and that. And I really do this presentation to get them to, to, to fully understand from day one, how important good ground is, so. Yeah, it is. Uh, and so, you know, there's, for those who didn't see my my webinar, the first point on here about Tom Frauman's article, it pays to become a ground fanatic. That is literally the best article I've seen written on ground bar none. I mean, he goes through transfer efficiency. He goes through all the things that kind of I lay out in my more modern presentation. That was done back in 1996. So Yeah, I'm wondering if there's a link to that or something I was gonna ask you. But you know, I it's a it's it it was published in Powder Coating magazine. So yeah, I think they're done now. They're they're gone. Yeah. So I mean, I can get to you. It's it's a Xerox copy of the of the article. Yeah, we so can just scan it, and I find. yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll scan it, and then I'll pop it into the. I have a vault. Okay. Where people can, um, you know, put their email address in and they get a vault of, uh, we're kind of creating the vault now. It's just starting out. I'll put that link in there. And then uh, that article, if we can find it, will be in the vault. Um, and I'd be, I'd be, I'll do that when we're done today. I'll get that off yeah. right away. Yeah. Um, um, some of the, some of the, you know, some of just a point of reference, what is ground? Ground is a a common return path for current. It's literally something in earth ground, okay? Yeah. Um, and then, and then uh, it also limits the buildup of static electricity. There's three different aspects in this presentation I talk about for ground. One is safety, because safety is number one anyways. Uh, one's quality, and then the, the other aspect is, is cost. From a safety point of view, you don't want to have a fire start. You don't want, you'll never get I should never say never, okay? <laughs> There's no probability that you'll get electrocuted from not having ground parts, but you will, you you could get a discharge. Um, and I tell people this, especially the, the batch guys, they paint a whole cart of parts and they don't have a good ground. And then they go to grab the cart handle to pull it out of the booth and put it in the oven. And they get this snap and they mm -hmm. get this poke. That's literally... A, a complete cart that's full of ions, surface ions that have nowhere to dissipate because there's no ground. 
when you reach your hand to the to the cart, you are presenting that cart full of ions with um, a ground path. And so literally all the charge from all those ions is jumping to you. And that's, that's not ever going to kill you, but it's going to startle you. And if it startles you enough, you're going to end up falling down, breaking an arm, breaking a leg, whatever. So, yeah. Um, and then on the quality side, um, you know, people are always worried about Faraday cage penetration. They're worried about back ionization, especially some of these small wheel shops, mm-hmm. you know, if you're looking for a real smooth clear coat on top of, of a color coat or a translucent, you're going to have a hard time getting that smoothness if you don't have a good ground path. Right. So when you're talking about that, you're talking about like that orange peel. Is yeah, that what you, the, yeah. yeah. If you can see right on here in this front sample. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back ionization is, is orange peel. So it's something that nobody wants to see on their nice shiny wheels, right? It's yeah. Well, we just blame the powder supplier, right? <laughs> Well, and, and, and in all fairness, there are times when you can blame the powder guy because <laughs> you can get orange peel or that, that, that orangey appearance also from wide swings in particle size in your powder. So if right. you've got a lot of 40 to 50 to 60 micron particles and a lot of, of 10 to 20 micron particles, particles, they flow out differently and you can get orange peel from that. Most generally we're talking electrostatic orange peel from excess. Right. Right. Is there, is there a visual difference between those two? Like the particle micron you couldn't tell. So you just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That might be a good uh, topic for a future podcast. (laughs) And, 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 and honestly, I mean, I'll send you some names, but there's one person I would put on a podcast to talk about powder related defects. And I'll talk to you offline on that. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot your audience could learn from someone who's really well-versed on powder chemistry and how powders flow. You know, the, the small DIY guys have ovens that don't recover temperature fast. And, and if the temperature doesn't reco- recover fast in an oven, then flow out is all different and you don't get the characteristics that you want from the powder. They're all right. designed to recover quick. so. Right. Right. And I, you know, the whole point of this, of the podcast and why we created it was to, you know, you know, that there's a huge informational gap. We're trying to address that through PCI. Um, And, you know, we're trying to tease out uh, because custom coders are still to this day left out in the old, in the cold sometimes. And we're having to create our own um, ways and methods to processing um, you know, aside from the differences between line coders and powder coders at, at the get, um, you know, we want to tease out some of the best tips and tricks from uh, that part of the industry to utilize in our own, um, and, you know, our own operations. I actually just interviewed uh, Denny Young from uh, um, DJ Powder Coating, who actually has did a brilliant way of racking using uh, line system racks to improve his own uh, batch production because he's just a batch coder. So uh, that was the earlier podcast. So if you haven't heard that podcast, um, please go and and check it out because it's, 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 it's 
really where I kind of came to the understanding that we actually need to grab it from you guys, you know, from the line coder guys and bring it down to our level, uh, to our benefit, you know? There's a lot to be said about that. I, I, because I said I have a special place in my heart for the DIY and the startup guys, I do follow a lot of these Facebook um, blogs and that. And one of my, and you're addressing this, but one of my big issues is there's a lot of people throwing out a lot of information that frankly isn't, isn't, isn't true. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, I mean, I start reading some of this stuff and I'm thinking, okay, should I, should I jump in here? And my, my fear, every time I jump in to put a comment in from a professional's point of view, it just seems like I get inundated with people that don't argue on both sides, you know, well, right. oh, that guy's right. So yeah, I, I, I appreciate what you're doing with these uh, uh, podcasts here. And I, and I, I'd be willing to help out any I can. Yeah, uh, I actually just saw a comment that I had Chris Redding on. Uh, from, guy, yeah, uh, yeah he, very smart guy. We had him on, I don't know what the episode was, but you know, they've got the uh, pure clad that they're introducing uh, for the wood uh, coatings, um, yep. coatings on wood and cabinets. Yeah, and um, you know, uh, we answered a tech question from some uh, a viewer, or a follower of ours, and Ross gave his perspective. And then I had um, Chris actually commented. So if you go to the YouTube channel, you'll and you look at our Coder Tech News uh, segment, which was a few weeks ago. Okay. Uh, he actually just replied and had another perspective, and it was a very good perspective. So. I think uh, people, I, I'm, you know, just shout out to Chris for, for commenting um, and explaining things uh, from a more higher level, I guess, uh, than, a, you know, a, a DIY level uh, to kind of understand the chemistry and what happens in the bonding process and stuff like that. So, and, and or Chris the inner layers. Chris was a fellow PCI board member with me and, and actually he was president uh, during one of the periods I was on the board. And, I do have a lot of respect for him and, and I would trust his knowledge. Yeah, it, it was a very good explanation. And I, I just want to say thank you, Chris, for doing that. But let's get back to this pod, <laughs> to this website, yeah. web, web, webcast So, on, on grounding. So there's safety, quality, and then you didn't address costs. And, and the cost side comes from the transfer efficiency aspect. Mm -hmm. Okay, your, your transfer efficiency is really low on ungrounded parts. Fundamentally, and I, I don't want to get into it on this one, but fundamentally there's a, a law of physics that that guides us in powder coating, and that's Ohm's law. And you know, your voltage is a potential energy, your kinetic energy, the, the energy that does the work that creates the charge is your current flow. And so if you what starts with transfers the potential energy to kinetic energy is the introduction of a ground in front of your gun. Your ground then will allow current to flow from the electrode to your part. Okay, so if you got a good ground, you got a really good uh, transfer from potential energy to kinetic energy. If you've got a poor ground in front of it, then, then you're not gonna get that current flow to start effectively and therefore you're gonna get a degraded transfer efficiency. Mm -hmm. So, And it's it's so hard because you can't see it, right? And if I guess if it, there was, uh, you know, you cannot see these forces at work. 
Um, and you if you could, them. you'd understand it maybe a little better. Well, so so here's a here's an example I use when I teach inside the booth. If I'm if I'm triggering my gun out in the middle of the booth with no parts on, around it at all, I show them that the current flow on the controller is very low. The microamps is very low because there's no ground to create the 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 flow of ions. Okay. Mm -hmm. However, my hand will become the color of the powder coming out because my hand presents a ground to the electrode. It's not a very effective one or a very efficient one, okay, but it will start that minimum current flow. And of mm -hmm. course, then you'll get the wrap coming back with the powder onto your hand. So yeah. if the painter's in his booth and he's got, he's got a bare hand and his hand is the same color as the parts he's painting, that's a telltale sign <laughs> that you've got a bad ground on your parts because your hand's a better ground. Yeah, uh, I think there. I don't want to stop the pod, you know, this again. But I have seen in the groups a guy had posted just this week, at, which was so ironic because it always kind of happens right as we're getting ready to do some kind of a, a podcast on something similar or uh, you know the on grounding or whatever. But he had powder all over his face. And, you know, I know he was, you know, I don't know what the situation was. He was just saying it was a busy day at work or whatever. And I'm thinking, are you sure you checked your ground? <laughs> well, and, 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 and I guarantee you, he's not targeting his face with the gun. He's targeting away from his face to a part that allegedly has a good ground. If it had a good ground, all that powder would go to it. None of it would come right. back to him. Right. So, yeah. so yep. I worry when I see posts like that. I mean, we not sure he was, you know, making a joke or cracking a joke or something about how busy it is. But I, I really do think that that, you know, you should be checking your ground. And I also believe that some people are not grounded enough personally. Like, I don't know if this kind of relates to you know, I think you had brought it up in the webinar that I had talked to, you know, that I had attended. And it was like, you know, if it's Ross thinks that it actually has something to do with your personality, too. Uh, but that's kind of getting woo woo there. But uh, some people just aren't good coders. Right. I mean, as much as they want to be in this business, there is a certain kind of flow that the human being has. Uh well, I think a lot of it comes down to, let's talk about your footwear. If your footwear is rubber and insulating, then you're not actually in contact with ground. You're, you do have, as long as you have a good gun, if you're holding onto the handle, that's giving you an electrical ground. It's not a true earth ground, but you'll have some ground. But if you're wearing rubber sole shoes that are insulating to ground, um, that yeah, you're going to be, your body, the majority of your body is going to be electrically above ground and you'll get a charge built up on you so oh interesting so yeah. what are you recommending for footwear then well i do i'd use any leather soles any anything that's conductive um, i see people standing on on uh, mats in a booth you know the the, mm -hmm. the stress relief mats yep. if those aren't conductive you're actually putting your body above ground wow okay wow that's a good tip all right, well, what's next? So, you know, I go into, here's a point that I, I've started making. It, it, it's, it should have a huge impact on people, but it doesn't. Um, NFPA 33 says that anything that's conductive in a powder booth 
must have uh, resistance to ground of less than one megohm. Okay, if you've got parts that are are coated or or hanging on coated hooks, they do not give you that requirement. They they their resistance to ground is up. Some of it's infinite, and a lot of it's way more than one one megohm. So technically, if you're powder coating in a booth with ungrounded parts, you're violating the NFPA 33 code and, and also the OSHA code because OSHA's 1910-107 says the same thing. You know, that goes in one ear and out the other um, for the most part. But I just like to bring it up because, you know, everybody says I've got a good ground. Well, you don't. And, and here you're in violation. Selling a, an end user, the selling the point that ground is important and ground should be really paid attention to every part you're painting. Everybody says, I've got good ground. I say, you don't. And then I say, here's what you need to do. And then they say, well, I can't afford to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and my point is, for any number of reasons, you can't afford not to do it. Whether it's safety, whether it's quality, surface quality, or whether it's cost, you literally can't afford not to present a good ground. Right. Okay. So, right. It's a I hard mean, sell. It's a hard sell. Yeah. I teach classes and everybody walks away from my class going back to work, telling the boss, we need to get better ground. We need to clean our hooks more often. We need to do this. And they get that, you know, deer in the headlights thing. You know, we, we can't afford to do that. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's important. And I also think that if we could, if we could as a group, uh, you know, in, you know, know that, then maybe we could charge more higher prices too. I mean, instead of the $50 rim, you know, guy, maybe you should be charged because you know that you are providing a better ground and a better quality finish. Well, and, 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 and you know what? You shouldn't have to really point that out because your quality will be much better than someone right. trying to put a nice coat on a uh, aluminum wheel without a good ground. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that would sell itself. But, but it, in a conversation, you know, you, you know, if you're a painter of wheels and you're doing high quality work and you're higher than everybody else, part of that argument could be, you know, we, we use fresh hooks on every wheel we coat because mm -hmm. we know we need a good ground to get the high quality. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, you know, it, 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 it's actually better for us to do this. And, and does it cost a few bucks more? Yeah, but, but the cost is going to be reflected in the quality. So right. Right. Absolutely. Good point. This, uh, this, uh, the, what's up there now is a mega, I, you know, and everybody has the misconception that their little, their little nine volt, uh, um, uh, conductivity tester isn't good. It, it's, it's actually the opposite. The mega will show a ground that a nine volt, volt ohmmeter won't show. So it's really giving you a better indication of good than a worse indication of bad. So um, the mega ohmmeter, every, there's not a doubt in my mind, every shop should have one of these. They cost anywhere from 200 to $500. Ours is, you know, this Amprobe you can pick up for 350, 375. It has nine, uh, 500 volt and a thousand volt. What a mega does is it, it measures the resistance at a higher voltage. 
So whereas a 24 volt might not find a ground, a thousand volts, you'll get some current flow, which will then say there's there's a, a low resistance. Good to have, okay. Uh, the other thing I, I point out is there's a difference between conductivity and ground. If you put your megger between two pieces of metal and it says zero ohms, that doesn't tell you you have a good ground. It just tells you that there's zero resistance between those two points. If neither one of those points is connected to an earth ground, you have conductivity, but you don't have ground. Mm. So okay. that's, when I did this presentation, I really went a little deeper than we normally do to try to, to get the point across. Um, you know, I use this slide here to show the ground path, you know, here, here the ground path comes through this wire to a clamp that's clamped onto the to the rack that then has got uh, parts hanging from uh, hooks. You know, so so anywhere along this ground path, so the ground path is part to hook, to rack, to, to clamp, to cable, to the booth, which on the other side of the booth where this wire comes through is a wire that goes literally to a 10 foot deep uh, yeah. uh, ground rod in the ground. That's the ground path. There's any number of ways that that ground path can be uh, uh, degraded. If I have dirty hooks, I don't have a ground path. If I have a dirty rack that doesn't have bare metal to present to clean hooks, I don't have a ground path. If I connect my clamp up to a portion of the rack that's got powder on it or cured paint on it, I don't have a ground. You know, and going all the way back, and I like to say, check your ground path every time and, and also check it back at the ground rod because the ground wire could have come disconnected. Ground rods are copper. Somebody wants to steal copper and make $2 off of it, they'll steal your ground rod. So you always want to verify that that ground path, part, hook, rack, clamp, wire, goes all the way back to a rod that's in the ground. A lot of people say, well, why can't I sink a ground rod right in, in my booth? And the answer is you can, but many buildings are built on, on soil that's sandy and not conductive. So we always recommend sink your ground rod outside of the building at a drip edge where we know there's a reasonable probability that there's gonna be, that the ground is gonna be conductive and can actually pull those ions away. Um, if, if you do a ground rod inside your booth, I recommend you sink a second ground rod about 18 inches away. Now you got two ground rods down in the soil. If you connect your megger between the two ground rods and you get low resistance, that's telling you that the, that the earth um, is conductive. It will actually pull the charge away. Now, I talked to my husband about this this morning and I said, what do you have any questions about ground? He goes, no, but when we set up our booth and moved into the new shop here, he, are you a, a fan or not a fan of um, connecting your ground to the building? Uh, so what he did is, you know, when you have a metal building, those pilings and, you know, those. Yep. That's, no, there. So he just drilled a hole in that and then it got exposed, the metal there. So here's the ground path on a building. Okay, it all starts with the ground rod outside the building. Okay, that ground rod 
by code, by electric code. So this is something that you can't get a approved um, permit on. Right. A ground rod has to present a certain resistance, low resistance to ground, okay? But that's connected up to your electrical control panel, okay? Your electrical control panel uses ground to get you your neutral. That's different than a building. A building, it does not present a good ground. Okay. Because there's not a clear path to a ground rod in, in the earth, okay? The building might have some pilings on it, but any any metal that's going down into earth is encapsulated in concrete in your in your foundation. Mm -hmm. So it's really not. Honestly, if you were to cheat and not sink a ground rod, the best place to find a ground is not your building, it's your cold water pipe. Because your cold water comes to your building through this long path of right. underground pipe mm -hmm. that that is giving you that ground. So if if you got a cold water pipe close and you don't want to sink a ground rod in a good, better, best environment, you know, best is a real good earth ground ground rod. Better is, you know, a cold water pipe is somewhere between good and better. Okay. Good to Where know. Yeah. Not a cold water pipe is if they use somewhere along the line, whether it's at your water softener or wherever in, in your water path, if they use an isolating union, that means the, cold water pipe in the plant doesn't take that path because it's blocked through that isolating union. It won't actually take you to the grounded part. Okay. So always use a true earth ground, sink a rod. Home Depot sells them for pennies, you know, it's, well, yeah. it's more than pennies now. But. And I think you have a slide of, uh, on that too, just showing. Yeah, I have, a, and, and so that's what a ground rod looks like. That's sunk mm -hmm. on the edge of our building. When water comes down the building, it goes down this crack. My soil is very conductive. Um, and that's what it looks like on the outside. It comes into the building and goes to the booth right here. There's a, That's a bolt that goes to the outside of the boat, booth. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. wire is connected. So, mm -hmm. um, oh, one of my favorite things. So if you've painted a whole bunch of parts and you walk up to them to point to a defect or a blem on a part showing somebody we got a little problem there, you get your finger close enough and that charge jumps to you. So zap, you get it. Mm -hmm. The other thing, if you're if you're powder coating and while you're coating, you're hearing this snap, snap, snap. That's a hundred percent proof and evidence that you don't have a good ground. What you have is a charge that's building up on your parts and your hooks. And somewhere along the line, there's a little micro crack in the powder, powder coating surface. And when there's enough charge, that charge will find that micro crack and actually get to earth ground. And that's yep. that snapping sound. I had, in one class I taught, I asked the question, do you guys hear snapping when you're powder coating? Because I'll get two or three people to raise their hand and I, that's, a, that's proof positive you're not getting ground. One guy raised his hand in the class and he says, yeah, that's the only way I know my electrostatics are working. And I thought, well, that's not a very good way to, to find that out, so. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, and this was a video this I, I don't know that I can I let me see if I can show this here this is example of of static discharge right here now you see the oh there right now Yikes. that's that's not going to hurt anybody and cause any trouble because it's it's that's being created by the powder hose itself 
where the powder going through that powder hose is tribal charging. So the hose is getting an electrostatic charge buildup on it, and it finds that little path right there to discharge it. If that was discharging in near the spray zone of a gun, there's enough energy in that arc that if you have the right blend of powder air concentration that you can actually get ignition. So Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and when I talk about quality, the three things are film thickness and more than film thickness, film uniformity. Yeah. And then, and then getting into Faraday's and, and all of these things relate to um, a, a phenomena called excess free ions. And if you just Google that, you can find out excess free ions at 100,000 volts, the corona charge field at the end of the gun has about 80% excess free ions. These are ions that, that don't have a powder particle to charge, but they stay attached to an air molecule. Mm -hmm. Those air molecules are just like the, um, the powder once they get something extra hanging from them, they wanna get rid of it. So they're all fighting for that same surface. And that's where you get, if you got an excess, a, a high amount of excess free ions, that's where you get all of these issues. Mm -hmm. And that's for another day, another class. Yeah, okay. Um, I talk a little bit about uh, average film build. You know, you get a spec from a customer and he says, we need an average film thickness of three mils. Well. I can deliver that average three mils with a whole bunch of surface that's at one mil and a whole bunch of surface that's at five mils because if you average them together, it's three mils. Mm -hmm. But clearly a surface that's got very thin film here and very thick film here, you're gonna have different mechanical properties. You're gonna have different electrical properties. You're gonna have probably at one mil, if you're painting an orange or a yellow, you're not even getting, you're not even hiding metal. So right, right. while you meet the average film thickness spec, you got a terrible surface. If you look at the bottom example, if you got a bunch of two nines and a bunch of three ones, your average is three mils. And, and inarguably, that's a much better, much more uniform surface. Yes. So I bring up standard deviation. I give them a little statistical work here, right, in the presentation. Standard deviation is how you determine how good an average is. If a standard deviation is really low, then it's a re then that average number is a really good average. It's more like the lower equation here. Mm -hmm. If standard deviation is real high, that means your spread of, of data is real wide, more like this right. one. Right, right. And, and oh, by the way, modern day film thickness testing equipment can actually give you if you take a eight data points on a part, it'll average the, the, the mill thickness measurements and it'll actually tell you what the, the average mill is and what the standard deviation is. So that's something that people might not know. I didn't know they could do that. That's great. Yep. Yeah, it's all everything's digital nowadays. Most mm -hmm. anybody's anybody's equipment can do that for you. Um, this is this is some data that Colleen provided me based on the study that we did. Um, this is the variation in, in film thickness here on a poorly grounded part. So you can see you have a lot of parts that are down here at two mils or two microns, and you have a bunch of parts up here that are at 12 microns. Clearly that's a poor surface. You come over here where the part was well grounded, they did surface prof, prof uh, I, sometimes I can say that word, sometimes I can't, <laughs> profometry, okay? Mm -hmm. 
and here you got a nice uniform uh, uh, range of film thicknesses. So, so I mean, inarguably, ground has a significant impact on surface quality. I mean, it's okay. inarguable. The data is there to support it. Uh, this was a study that we did here, and I, uh, I'm going to skip to the next slide here. I like, yeah, I like this one here. This is a good photo. So what we did is we took a whole bunch of panels and we hung some from string, cotton string, and some from uh, good clean metal hooks. And we did it randomly. So it wasn't like we did four or five poorly grounded ones in a row. We just randomly did it. And here's a perfect example of a poorly grounded part not getting coated because the part right next to it was properly grounded. And as mm -hmm. we got to the edge, okay, the, the spray coming out of the gun saw ground here and no ground here. So the powder flowed where it saw the ground and that was over here. And you clearly, this, and if you measured the film thickness on this part, which we did, we, we had uh, templates made up here. We measured all this data and what we found was clearly that on the ungrounded parts, we were not getting a good film thickness versus the grounded parts. Is this the one where you um, uh, you used a string instead yeah, of a so, hook? Yeah, right here, you see that's a piece of string. That's not yeah, a hook. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That's how so, you ended up getting it that way. There was no way that that part had a ground. Right. But you can right. see, you can see even though it had no ground, it did get some powder on it, right? Right. Yeah. So, so you're you're thinking, okay, I'm good, and you're looking at these edges here. If there was three or four parts in a row that weren't grounded, you wouldn't see this effect except on the end ones where either the previous part was good ground or the new part coming in was good ground. If you had a whole bunch of ungrounded stuff, you wouldn't see this. Right. Because there'd be nothing to rob the powder away from it. Right. So you could you could run all day long with ungrounded parts, bad hooks, and you could successfully get powder on like I did here, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is here it's one mil, here it's one mil, here it's four mils, here it's six mils, here it's eight mils. The, the uniformity goes away without ground. And cost, I don't, we, so again, if, it, if I have a poorly grounded part and I'm trying to do one, let's say three mils, I'm gonna have a whole bunch of ranges of parts on that part that have five or six mils and, and a whole bunch that have one mil. And oh, by the way, as I'm painting that surface, I'm putting the same amount of powder on. Mm -hmm. So anywhere we had a low number, that just said the powder wasn't sticking. It was still coming out of the gun. So where does it end up? It ends up on the floor, bad transfer efficiency. Where it did stick and I got these five, six, seven mil buildups, you know, powder was, effectively transferring, but now I have mechanical properties. If you exceed the range on a TDS, uh, the range of film build, uh, you know, if, if the TDS says these properties are valid between two and a half and four mils, and you start putting powder on at eight or nine mils, you don't have the mechanical properties. You don't have the flex properties. Everything goes away. So, you know, holistically, you want to stay within that range the best way to stay within that range is having a good quality ground. Because mm -hmm. yeah. without it, all bets are off. I mean, you know. 
I like, like, yeah, I like how you, this is a great analogy here. Yeah, this, this is a real good one because, you know, people that are painting and having poor ground, they're seeing light parts at the end of the line and they're coming up and bitching to their painters that they're painting light. So what do painters do? They start, they turn up the power output and start, start throwing as much powder as they can so that mm -hmm. they don't produce light parts. Well, that's taken your film range of two and a half to three and a half. You're putting three and a half, you're putting three and a half on most of it. And so you're operating at the high end of the acceptable range. And if you do that, you're you're actually increasing your cost because if two mils, two and a half mils is satisfactory, it would cost you this. But if you're because of poor ground, you're constantly running on the high side you're putting extra powder out and mm -hmm. that extra powder is money out of your pocket. So. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, I mean, in terms of cost, we're passing it along to the, you know, a lot of times if we're doing a special order powder, we're just ordering a pound or two from Prismatic or Columbia or, you know, uh, it, it's, um, you know, you're not really thinking that, um, you know, well, it's not thinking? necessarily on the top of your mind, but it could be, especially if you have some leftover powder, you could make more money on it next. You know, like you could charge your customer again. So, but even, I would, I would bet you, if you got one pound of powder from Prismatic or and you're painting this part, you're praying that you got enough powder, right? That you don't run out of powder before the part's coated, right? Okay. <laughs> there is that too. Yes. So, so why pray? Why why rely on praying? <laughs> Put a good ground on there and get maximum transfer. <laughs> good point. Good point, John. So it's not a, in this case, it's not cost. It's about avoiding having to talk to the big guy upstairs. There has been a few times where we've prayed. Yes. <laughs> oh, I know. I trust me. I do some G jobs here. And so I'll get a one or two pound sample from a powder guy. And I got this big table to do. And I'm thinking, oh, God, please don't run out. Please don't run. Please don't run out. <laughs> So, you know, and, and and the insurance that you're going to optimize the powder is having a good ground. There you go. Yep. There you go. So what else do I talk? This is just some different examples. I don't care whether your ground wire is solid wire or stranded. If you go on the blogs, you'll see thousands of different differences in opinions. Some guy will be adamant you have to use a solid ground wire. Or, he'll, or another guy will be adamant, you have to use stranded, you can't, you gotta be six gauge, you gotta be 10 gauge. Yeah. Honestly, as long as you can get a path to ground, it doesn't matter whether it's solid or, or, or uh, stranded. The difference there is stranded is more flexible, it's easier to move around and bend and get what you wanna do than solid. The difference between six gauge and 10 gauge is, if I've got a little short 10 foot run of wire, to go to ground, I can run with the, the, the higher gauge number is the smaller wire. So mm -hmm. if I've got a short run, I, I, I don't worry about the, the resistivity of the wire. I can use thinner, smaller wire, 10 gauge. If I'm running my ground rod 100 yards or 100 feet, I wanna make sure I don't have a drop off in ability because I've mm -hmm. got this long uh, resistance uh, right. ground. So I go with the bigger wire. That's right. awesome. And for right. most of the, the batch guys, DIY guys, most of them are probably, if they don't have the ground hook up in their booth, it's going to be just outside the plant, 20, 30, 40 foot run. 
I just go with 10 gauge, eight or 10 gauge. Don't worry about getting anything heavier. Um, one important point that that oh yes this added is good. To the presentation and that is is all soils are not created equally mm-hmm. and some soils picture a soil that's just big rocks there's no there's nothing in between them just a bunch of big rocks that's not going to give you a, a good ground there's very little contact area between your the rocks and and your ground rod so it's going to be very poor. So think about what your soil's like. If you got sandy soil, you're probably in an optimizing environment, you're going to sink two ground rods instead of one because one's not going to present enough ground to you. If you're in clay, uh, moist soil, uh, topsoil, that kind of stuff, you're going to be good with one ground rod. But you, it's something you need to be aware of. Yeah. I was going to talk to you about, yeah, this is, I love this photo. This is such a great photo. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, this, this explains what I just said yeah. in, in, in pictures here. Mm-hmm. We're sinking the ground rod, the same distance, three foot into the ground. They're using a ground tester here to test the groundability of that rod. And what they're finding is in sandy soil, the resistance is 750. You get down here into good top soil, moist soil. The resistance is only 122 ohms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Remember, the lower that number, the better the ground is. So clearly here, uh, you're going to get better conduction to ground by using uh, uh, a sandy or not non-sandy soil, a good conducting soil. Then I talk yeah. about then I talk about how deep we sink the ground rod. Okay, and mm-hmm. so this is the same soil here. This is the same soil. We sunk one a foot and a half down, three foot down, and then seven foot down. And as we had more ground rod area in the soil, the resistance went down. So, you know, somebody says eight or 10 foot, I'm going for 10 foot every time. I get that extra two foot of rod and I'm gonna bring my resistance down. It's really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here I talk about testing. You know, I'm looking here, if I'm sunk in, in moist soil, I'm gonna have almost zero or very close to zero resistance between those two points. If I'm in dry soil or sand, I'm gonna have a number other than zero. I'm gonna have a number that's telling me that I'm not, that my soil is not conductive. And then then I think I mentioned too, there's people that will sink a ground rod in their booth and and they'll know that it's not good because it's dry soil and they'll actually drip water in it that's not really a good idea because the water will erode that sand or that soil away. And it doesn't, you're not getting enough moisture down into the ground to actually be beneficial. It makes you feel better, um, but it's not actually doing you a whole lot of good. Yeah, I think this is great because I think there are a lot of Southwest coders, you know, people that are located in the Southwest where they have these sandy conditions, um, dry conditions. yeah, so so when you're in sandy conditions, you can double the amount of dispersion by sinking a second rod. Mm-hmm. But but what's important here is the dist in order to maximize that beneficial addition of conductivity is you have to have the distance between the ground rods equal to twice the submersion depth. So these are sunk eight foot down. You have to be sixteen up apart if you put yeah. it closer it's not going to be bad but you're not maximizing the benefit from sinking the second ground rod right and good visual 
And if you were actually doing this because you needed to present your electrical ground for, for uh, inspector, not for powder coating, but your electrical ground, you would have to do this. This wouldn't be optional. You would have to have that distance at least two times the depth. And actually some places in order to get an adequate ground for their electrical system in their plant, they may have to sink five or six ground rods, but every one of them has to be that same distance apart. And this is just, these are just examples. You know, when I went to these plants, everybody said, we've got good ground. Well, no, you don't. You're kidding. <laughs> you know, if you're going to do this, somebody asked in one of the classes, you know, isn't it better to have a buildup on your hook so that it doesn't rob powder from your part? And, and technically, the answer to that question is yes. Powder's not going to come to this part here because it doesn't have ground. Now, if you have no ground here, it's going to go everywhere. But if you have a, uh, if you took a Dremel down in this area and ground it down to bare metal and hung your part on that, now your part's got a good ground and powder's not going to want to go to this part here where it's got a heavy buildup. So it won't continue to build up, if you will. Yeah, I was talking to Ross about the um, hooks and stuff. And I think um, that's coming up now more. You're going to start talking about hooks and, and how important yeah, well, it is. So, so the choline study proved, it, it, the choline study was an engineering study. So it was based on real data, field data. And based on that data, if somebody asked me how many times they should use a hook before they strip it, I'm telling you two times. Because in, in the study, when the hook was used once virgin and once with one coat on it, our standard deviation of all of our sample points, and we had over 800 data points. Uh, we had 20, 40 per piece, 20 pieces. We had 800 data points that generated this data. After the, after the second use of the hook, first, first time virgin, second time one coat, we still had a really nice standard deviation. In other words, the variation in film thicknesses was was acceptable. Mm -hmm. the, the third time we used that hook, now that hook has two coats of powder on it now, right? The mm -hmm. third time we used it, the standard deviation went through the roof, which clearly was telling us that we had a lot of uniformity issue, excuse me, uniformity issues with film thickness and, and therefore all the things that go along with it, the bad things, extra cost, poor quality, yeah. orange peel, all that stuff comes with it. Right. Clearly, in my mind, and in, in my opinion, and being an engineer, I'm telling you two times. Now, is that is that the gospel? No, but if you ask me from an engineering study point of view, use it twice. After you use it three and four times, there's the, the little path that you might have down in there to get your, your part, uncoated part, in contact with uncoated metal. It goes away after two or three times. Now, if you want to cheat, go in there and Dremel it out. Put a, put a Dremel at the end of the line. After you pull your part off, have somebody go in there and, with a Dremel and do a two-second little grind, and then you're good to go. Right. And what size, or were these the size hooks that you used in your test, in your choline test? Or This, this was, um, no, this was from a couple of cu couple different customers who, when I walked in, said, I've got good ground. Oh, okay. The choline, the choline test, I think the the 
uh, hooks were eighth inch uh, steel hooks, eighth inch cold rolled steel hooks. Mm -hmm. So small diameter. And uh, um, and I think I mentioned that these were these were punched metal trays that that had sharp edges. So you know what we hear all the time. Oh, I, I forgot to mention this. We hear all the time. It doesn't matter if I got powder on my hook because when I hang this heavy part on it, the powder chips off and I go metal to metal. No, that's not true. Okay, you use powder because it's very chip resistant. So, so it's got properties that prevent when you hang a part on there that it chips through. And so, you know, we chose the, the trays from uh, Carrier Corporation because they had sharp edges on their, the hanging holes and they also weighed a fair amount. They were fairly good sized 16 gauge stampings. And, and the data based on sharp edges and some mass being hung on hooks the data doesn't support the fact that you'll chip through that that cured powder layer and get down metal to metal. It just doesn't support it. Yeah, and I think um, you know uh, custom coders should definitely. You know, I, I was asking Ross like he he said he spends at least two hours uh, of his week every week, and you know all we're doing to you know, the, the, the thinner hooks and those that don't cost that much, we generally just throw those away and, after and we're that's done. That's what I recommend. I, yeah. Yep, yep. But with the, those expensive heavy ones, you know, the C hooks and the um, S hooks that are that thicker one in the previous slide, I mean, those cost so much. Uh, yep. it's, it's actually worth the time to spend, at least in our opinion, in our operation, um, to, to spend the time, you know, two to three hours a week stripping, uh, having enough, first of all, having enough, you know, and I think you, you have to order enough hooks to keep you going. You got to have so, a, a, a set online being yeah. and a set offline being addressed, whether it's in a burn off oven or a, a, a solvent stripper or whatever, you mm -hmm. know, you can't rely on one set of hooks because you're going to be handcuffed and you're not going to strip them. You're going to leave, you need to make production and you're just right. going to be using them. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Um, so yes, <laughs> ground is arguably the most important aspect of a successful powder coating company. It is. Yeah. And the keyword successful, again, you can go without ground. I mean, I, I say you can go with out ground with a lousy gun with lousy powder in humid environment and everything else and you can still powder coat yeah. but you're not doing it effectively or efficiently for successful powder coating ground is one of the major you know legs on the chair it, it you know a good ground a good gun a good booth good powder those are your legs but but a four-legged chair with one of them missing without ground it, it ain't stable so just think of it that way yeah, and I'm gonna, are, so are we, we're, this is pretty much it, right? On yep. your slides. So let me switch over because what I ended up, I was kind of clever today. Um, and before we got started, you I- You want me to unshare? Let me unshare. Uh, yeah, go ahead and unshare because I'm going to share um, Facebook groups uh, post that I made actually about a couple hours before we uh, 
started your breakfast, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, I got to get this question out because I have an expert on the show today. And um, so I wanted to uh, um, share my screen here to this page. And so I sent out, I, I'm a follower of and involved in some groups on Facebook. And there might, I put out a couple of different ones. This one is UKC Army powder coating uh, group. And um, I'm not sure how many members are in it, but I just sent this one out. So I got a lot of comments on it. So let's just run through. Can you see my screen, John? Yep. The ground between earth and my six, number six wire clip is fine. Like the maintaining. Yeah. So yeah. So honestly, that 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 first question there from Bill kind of addresses that that slide I had that showed our cart with the part hanging from it from mm -hmm. a hook. So so literally, uh, the the insurance is understanding that there has to be a continuous path to his clip, and, and we, he knows his clip is connected to ground. But what happens after the clip? So right. really, it's just a matter of, of understanding that it's got to be metal to metal everywhere something changes. Between the clip and the cart, the clip's got to be on bare metal, not on painted metal. Between the cart and the part, those hooks have to be, in a perfect world, no powder on them at all. In mm -hmm. an imperfect world, at least ground out so we know we got we got metal. One of the things that people miss on hand carts like this is you got to look at both ends of that hook, okay? Because you're conducting through the cart, through the hole that you're hanging the hook in. The hole could have a, a powder built up on it. Mm. The hook could have powder built up on yeah. it. Yeah. You know, and if you focus too much on the hook connection to the part, you're going to forget about that connection. So you really need to pay attention to the entire path. Yeah, and he also, oh, so then uh, Tom uh, Russo, he's an avid follower of the show and um, and in several of these groups and stuff. Uh, he asks, why does the main beam of my building ground better than true earth ground? That's a good question, because I brought that up earlier. Uh, LOL, does the river nearby help ground the footing of the building better than the rod itself? And we kind of just addressed that with what Ross had done. And it's funny because we actually have a canal back here too, which is where he's grounded, uh, you know, behind, you know, just behind the building here is a canal. I don't, I don't know if that has, if you want to try to attempt to answer that one or, you know. Well, I, I would throw the question back at, at Tom why isn't his earth ground actually getting him an earth ground? You know, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I, I would, I would, if this was me and I'd really like to study it, I would check with a megger between his ground rod and his building steel and see if there's a high resistance between those two. And then I'd start questioning. So let's go back. So the ground rod is typically three eighths inch diameter. So it has a fixed surface area. If it's sunk in the same soil as his building, and I don't know how his building is actually getting to ground. If it's, right. you know, if he's got, if he's got some kind of connection that takes metal from the building deep down into the soil, that metal is going to present a whole lot more area 
to the ground than his little three eighths inch ground rod is. So, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with them. I would, I would be, I would, I would love to know the number between his ground rod and his building. What's that resistivity in there? What's that, that reading? But uh, at the end of the day, if he, if he's convinced that his building is a better ground, then I would go for the best ground. I would connect to the building. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and at that, that point, it might be worth it for Tom to invest in one of those megs, mega, yep. what are you calling? Me megometer. Mego 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 yep. Megometer. Let's call yeah. it a megger. It's the megger. Megger. Okay. And um, oh, so we're I'm not talking. I'm a ground fanatic. I'm not a ground rod fanatic. I mean, you know, <laughs> I will tell you that the probability of a building being a better ground than a rod stuck in is, is, low in Tom's case may be the exception rather than the rule, but. Yeah. Uh, Unknown Coatings, who's the admin and uh, creator of the group, uh, he wants to know, are you an expert on grounding or an electrical engineer? I'm an industrial engineer by degree. I'm not an electrical engineer. Um, so I wouldn't ever profess to be that. Um, I just studied ground. Okay, I understand the, the principles in that. Um, a, an electrical engineer, actually not an electrical engineer, a power engineer, mm. someone who's used to power transmission would be a much better uh, educator of the science behind ground. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but I'm talking to powder coaters and if I got into all these scientific terms in that, it's yeah, it'd not be gonna like, work. It's, and, well, it's so, not even relevant, right? It's just, right. They're just trying to solve their problem and yep. move on. Um, okay, so let's, I'm not an electrical engineer. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's move on to Blake Stoltz. And he's asking, I'd be interested in knowing what the ideal threshold is for an acceptable ground, what it is. Yeah, what's so an that's actually a really good question. Zero is the right answer. And he recognizes yes. that. Right. <laughs> but, but in general, um, from a safety point of view, from codes, from the NFPA code, from um, the OSHA 1910-107, mm -hmm. the number is one megohm. Okay. You have to be below, below one million ohms to ground in order to qualify and, and be within the code in OSHA. If you're above that, it's bad. That could be the same threshold you use from a quality point of view, but, but you know, my instinctual answer would be you'd want to be closer to the zero mm -hmm. um, you know half a million ohms maybe would be acceptable um but so he's saying on his second question though he says where's like where are you going to start seeing that resistance on the second half of that question so 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 you, first of all with a mega you're not going to be measuring 10 ohms you're going to you're going to look at grander numbers you're going to be you know at at I mean, I, I wouldn't trust a reading below 250,000 ohms, and it's not important. At that point, it's not important. If, if you're reading three or four meg ohms, then, then you're in a range where, where A, you're violating code, and B, you know, you're, you're going to have quality issues. But anything below yeah. a million ohms, I think you're fine. And I think one of your slides uh, actually had that where the meter reading was like 3.4 or something like that. Yeah, it yeah. was three, it was three, three mag, 3.4 yeah. mag ohms. Yep. yep. Okay. So I think we, 
the first question we've already answered or was Bill's question was yep. um, the ground and the number six wire. Um, let's see, there's more comments coming in. I'm interested in other ideas to do if your soil is so hard that you can only get a grounding rod down about two feet, maybe three. That's a good so, question. So, so the you'd have to know why your soil is so hard. If, is it hard, dry clay that you can't drive your ground rod through? That should tell you, you got a, you got a bad ground opportunity anyways, but this is where you start sinking multiple ground rods. Okay. Okay. So, so if you can only get it down three foot, go six foot over and sink another one, tie them together. Yeah. You know, and, and then in a good, better, best, sink a third one and tie them all together. All of them are, two times the depth apart, right? So yeah. that, that's how I would deal with that. Okay, that's uh, fair enough. Uh, Casey Levac, uh, given you have a good ground, what causes body shocks when you grab the rack to roll it in the oven? So that's, so, okay, if you have a good ground and you get a, still get a shock when you go grab the rack, that's probably some ion buildup on your body, okay? Yeah. That's discharging to the good ground when you get close to it. So I would be looking at my shoes. I would be making sure I, I'm not preventing it. You know, I'd be looking at my gun. There's a there's a ground wire that comes in the gun cable that connects to that, that gun. If that ground wire is broken, now you don't have a good electrical ground. Mm, there's a lot of mm, things I'd look lots at. Lots of things to troubleshoot there. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, okay, Jimmy O'Malley. Uh, why am I grounding just fine with a strap attached to the cart and using just the clip from my sprayer, not even using my ground rod anymore? Well, you'd you'd have to ask Jimmy. Jimmy. <laughs> to, to, to demonstrate that he's doing a good coding job, that he's doing it as efficiently and effectively as possible. Because I, you know, this comes back to I can powder coat with no ground, okay? Am I doing a great job? Do I have uniform film build? Am I not seeing uh, back ionization and that? Um, you know, that ground from your, your cart is connected to an electrical ground, which is connected to a ground rod at your, at your service entrance where your power comes in. So theoretically, you have a good ground, um, mm -hmm. um, but but um, in a good, better, best environment, that ground is clouded with a whole bunch of other stuff going on versus a direct earth ground. Yeah. So. Okay, Jimmy, please follow the tips that John's given in this uh, uh, webinar today uh, because I think... And he said, uh, and weirdly having some of my best finishes lately. <laughs> Maybe the planets, I don't know, Jimmy. Maybe the planets are all aligned perfectly. I don't know. I don't know. But he Jimmy, can, he you could, take too many chances. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't quite know. You know how to address that. To be honest. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe Jimmy can reach out to you directly. So uh, the next question addresses the point I made with uh, yeah. a volt ohm meter. Okay. Yeah. And, and 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 it's not that a volt ohm meter is bad, but it may give you a false indication that you have no ground 
when you really do when you measure it at a higher voltage. Right. So maybe we can find a link. Uh, is there there was uh, maybe you can share the link or or tell me again the name of the uh, um, and we'll maybe we'll Google it here. Uh, what's the name of the brand that you recommend? Uh, oh my God, I'm bring, um, da -dum -da. it's not triplet. I, I'll send you, I'll send you a link to it. Okay, send me a link and then we'll put it in the webinar uh, for- you can, uh, to, you can go to most test equipment suppliers. We, we there's a testequipmentdepot.com is one source and you're just gonna ask for a megger, that's all. Yeah. And, and anybody will know what it is. Okay, so that's all the ones, the 10 comments from that one. Um, let's see if there are any other groups. Uh, I think we addressed everybody in that one. Yeah. Uh, well, you got a lot of groups there. Oh yeah. <laughs> Okay, here's a couple more. Uh, where do we listen to your show? You can go to uh, rosscoat.com, R-O-S-S-K-O-T-E, Shane. Uh, this is the powder coating tips and for industri and for, uh, tips and tricks for industrial professionals. Um, Dan Fitzpatrick, he has a uh, a really nice YouTube channel that he helps other powder coaters with. Uh, have him explain the proper way to check ground to rack, hook, rail, etc. with a meter. With a meter. Well, and I kind of I kind of went over that a little bit. So, so first of all, you you on a, on a megger, there's two leads coming from it. One lead has to be connected to a known ground it's mm -hmm. where you can actually see the wire coming in from an earth ground you connect the lead to that and then you're literally connecting the other lead if you want to bypass all the connection points and go straight to the part you can do that check your resistance if it's low then you don't have to check any further if it's high then you'd go to the hook and connect it to the hook and see you're going to work it back to where you see the deficiency yeah. in the ground path that's Pick a great point path. Everything yeah. has to be electrically connected in order to have a good ground. Right. And, and, and I said like, earlier, if you just check your part to your rack, you're not verifying ground, you're verifying conductivity. Okay. okay. Yeah. You have to have one lead connected to a known earth ground. Okay. Uh, Robert Soka, where do we connect ground from the gun? Where do we connect ground from earth? Can we ground the booth? What is the best method to ground the part? How many grounds do you need? Okay, so I think this one's already been addressed. Uh, okay. we, we actually did pretty well with addressing all of those. So uh, um, Robert, the, I hope the you- gun, The gun is electrically grounded from the ground wire that's in the cable that's attached. Right, yeah, right. There's gotta yeah. be, there's gotta be a conductive surface on the gun, whether it's the handle or the trigger. And actually that brings up a good point. You know, powder is hygroscopic, right? H-Y-G-R-O, hygroscopic. It wants to suck moisture to it, okay? And painters sometimes complain about their hands getting dry. A lot mm. of women will put a latex glove on 
to not get the dryness. And that latex glove is a barrier between their body and ground. So if right. you've got a latex glove on and you're powder coating, you're not grounded anymore, okay? If you got rubber soles on your shoes, that's even worse. Now you got yeah. zero. I, I imagine a lot of people ball. use rubber soles. Well, yeah, yeah but, but not all rubbers are created equal, right? So, mm -hmm. but even, even with the rubber sole, you still have something if you've got hand yeah, to the contact. Gun, right? Okay, so it, it, change change your shoes and don't wear a glove. Yeah, or if you wear a glove, they actually make conductive gloves purposely oh, okay. buy a conductive glove, and then you're going to be okay. If you don't want to do that, just cut a hole in the palm, a small hole, so part of your hand touches the handle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see. I think we just got one more uh, question. Ground is like a ground. Nathan Parks laughed my ass off. Okay. So Brandon was trying to help Nathan's question there. Oh. All right. Well, these are great. Th these were great. I'm going to stop the share because most of these uh, we've already answered. They were all good questions. Um, some of them we had touched on earlier. Um, so uh, that I'm going to, before we wrap up, I want to share uh, my screen again with Parker Ionics. Let's talk about your company and what do you sell in case anybody doesn't know. Um, tell us more about your company and let's do a plug for you. Okay, so Parker Onyx is a supplier of application equipment, powder guns, manual, automatic, powder coating booths, um, and we can do a whole po podcast on, on proper booth design because there's a right. lot of bad booths out there. Um, uh, and, and so we supply, we, we're we're part of the PCI, we're part of the advanced training rotation. So once a year, along with Nordson, Gima and Wagner, we host their, their 202 training. So mm -hmm. we're of that genre. Um, uh, we're just, this is, this is our 8500 series here that actually, I believe this week, we got final FM approval on our next generation handguns that we'll be announcing here shortly. Mm -hmm. uh, we still, honestly, we still sell our analog, you know, the old regulator and gauges. We still sell that because that that's three generations old. That technology has our charging, advanced Corona charging technology, pulse power built into it. Mm. And pulse power, and I we, we, sh we won't go in depth here, but pulse power fundamentally lets you charge powder with high voltage which equates to good transfer efficiency, as I said earlier, and low current simultaneously. So we can, we can our guns can put out 10 to 20 microamps at 100,000 volts. So we, we bring the microamps down to avoid orange peel, to avoid Faraday cage penetration issues. We bring you low, low current, which is beneficial for proper coating, and high voltage, which is beneficial for transfer efficiency simultaneously using a technology called pulse width modulation. And anybody can wow. Google that. There's a thing to Google, Google pulse width modulation. It's used in dimmer switches. It's used in plating, uh, plating uh, lines. It's used in welding equipment. Welding equi equipment controls the heat of the weld using pulse width modulation, high voltage, so you get a good arc, but low current, so you don't burn through parts. We use the same technology. That's what makes yeah. us different. And, uh, and it's a demonstrable technology. 
we sell all different parts, guns, gun movers. Um, we just we just were moved to a different division of our parent company, and uh, it's the Parker Engineering side of the business. We mm-hmm. sell complete paint lines from soup to nuts, anywhere oh, from wow. coat lines to uh, our parent company built. You'll love this Wuhan, China. Honda just three years ago built a brand new assembly plant in Wuhan, China, and our parent company did the entire paint line for them. So wow. we have that technology and knowledge between our headquarters and our North American branch here. So we do a little bit. And Abe, my buddy Abe, <laughs> he's a good friend of mine. He's a high school friend of mine. He's a dead ringer for Abe. And if Abe. He does who has no experience powder coating can lay down a uniform thickness of film with our gun there. Anybody can. (laughs) You know, um, let's talk just, if you have the time, uh, just uh, real briefly, let's talk about the Powder Coating Institute, what it's doing to uh, sort of bridge the gap. Uh, There was a recent article. It's been, uh, I've been bringing it up a lot in the, recent podcast that I've done, um, which is this one here with the education. Yep. Yep. Um, and you know, we, we just had a meeting about membership. I'm not sure if you were in that one or not, but, um, that's the first one I missed in about a year and a half. Yeah, you weren't there. That's right. Um, and I guess, you know, as the voice of custom coding, um, which is kind of what this podcast has been about from the get, uh, in building a community uh, for custom coders. Um, I'm beginning to think that PCI, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know they do say they have a custom coder, um, you know, that this is for custom coders. Right. But right. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if their definition of custom coders is slightly different than what we view ourselves as custom coders. And, and maybe we can talk about what is a custom coder. I think, I think your view of a custom coder is PCI's view. Okay. It's someone who paints somebody else's parts. Okay. And does it on a daily basis. Now you can take the custom coder name and you can subdivide that. You can go down to the one man shops you know, a custom coder could be a one-man shop. It could be a, a 40 or 50-man shop, right? Mm-hmm. There's a big range in there. Um, yeah. uh, we do we do have a special membership category called custom coders. They have their own um, board, if you will. They have their own seat on the PCI's board, a dedicated seat just to, powder, to custom coders. What we struggle with every year is we've got – I think 129, it ranges from 120 to 200 custom coder members, okay? Right. Um, we'd love to see that number higher because we have a voice for all these people um, through the board and through the organization. The, the PCI is the only membership organization that's dedicated 100% to powder coating. Okay. Mm-hmm. We That's don't true. do liquid. We don't do, we educate only on powder coating. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so our membership is the best of the best when it comes to knowledge, products, etc. What we run into with the, with the custom coders is a lot of the small shops, the owners are painting themselves. Okay. They don't have four or five. They're out there. 
their time is consumed running their business and it's hard. The benefit of belonging to the PCI is participating like you do, sit on committee, interact, mingle with other members. You learn from your peers, okay? And and, and speaking of peers, we have the peer groups for the custom coders, which is a great program um, where, where you're linked up with a group of other custom coders, not in your your geographical territory because they'd be your competitors Mm -hmm. but in a non-geographical territories so you can the the peer groups will go and have regular meetings at one of the facilities and and it's these are the peer group and so what they do is they actually grade the facility on how well they're doing and so they're all they're all intermingling they're all self uh, educating each other. Oh God, you pick up an idea. That's how he protects his hooks from getting powder on it. And you walk away with knowledge. Yeah. You don't get that if you don't belong to the association. You and 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 if you belong to the association and you don't participate, you don't get it either. So the key right. is joining it. It's it's not expensive to join PCI, but do more than join it, participate. And a lot of times that's where the hard part comes in because they just don't have time to do it. But yeah, meetings are all all online now through Zoom Zoom calls or Teams meetings. And if you can't sit at your desk and participate in a membership meeting or an educational committee meeting or a technical meeting, we've got all sorts of committees that anybody who belongs is welcome to participate in. And and you're going to spend an hour every two or three months among your peers. I, I just to me, it's a no brainer if you're a powder coder to belong to the organization. Right. I mean, if you are looking to grow your company, understanding the greater industry, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I've joined PCI is just to kind of uh, understand the greater industry and how it runs, how it works and um, and stuff. And these webinars have been really great, which is where I picked up, you know, I'm not a powder coder, you know that, but, uh, you know, um, I really, I I did get up at the crack of dawn. It was 5 (laughs) a.m. in my time zone um, to attend the webinar. And I totally found it fascinating, which is why I asked you to come on the show and stuff. And I think that, um, you know, if the platform, if this platform, if this Powder Coder podcast does anything, it's just to kind of share that knowledge so that you learn something new that you never knew before about PCI or about grounding or about scaling your business this this way and that way and and how others have done it um it, you know it's just sharing the information just to get it out there it's to to kind of open everybody's mind up to potentialities but but remember one thing i'm one point of contact okay if you join pci and you actually do more than just join it but you participate in an hour in an hour committee meeting every couple of months or you interact with other members you're getting multiple points of contact, multiple opportunities to learn, okay, yeah. within one organization. So, I, I mean, I, I'm very opinionated on ground, but there's probably a dozen other people within PCI that that will, will may give you a, a different tip, okay? So, yeah, I, but it's I, participation. It is, uh, but it also, you know, it's not, it, you know, the the wealth of knowledge behind that. I mean, if you did have some kind of question about something or other, I mean, they would hunt it down and find that answer for you. And I had Kevin Corson on the show, and that's exactly what he ha- is out to achieve. 
the, the powder coating handbook, the Bible. I don't yeah. know if you got one on your desk there. I, we do. That's generated. That's generated by the membership. We we sit together. I sit with my competitors, and we write the electrostatic portion, and we write the booth portion. And I'm with with Nordson, Gima, Wagner, and and we're taking the best knowledge of all of ours, and that's what gets into that handbook. Yeah. And that that for a participating member. When I say participating, come to the show. You know, uh, sit on committee you get the benefit of, of these very knowledgeable people and, and they're, they're all willing to share their knowledge with you, so. Yeah, and I think that that's been kind of the barrier that I think meant it, it might be more of a mental barrier for us custom coders that are kind of the DIYer type or garage type or have a small mom and pop shop is just knowing that that information is out there and you can grab it. You know, yeah. you can have access to it you can go and seek out uh, the answer to the questions you have, but it is kind of difficult. And, you know, again, the show is just to try to break down that barrier so that people like us know that we can, you know, ask people like you who have just, e you know, eons of energy, you know, of, of education and knowledge to share with us. And that's all I'm trying to do is just kind of eliminate that burden uh, you know, by opening it up uh, for at least for conversation. One of your safest ways to find speakers is just look within the educational committee of PCI because yeah. these people have all, anybody who's an authorized speaker has been vetted in their area of expertise, right? So, yeah. so like we said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, you can get information on a dozen blogs, but I can take you to, I can take you to one that some of the suggestions are so off the wall, but they're so confident in the way they present it that, you know, how do you vet that? How do you how do you trust that guy? Well, you know, the PCI is not going to give you bad information. Right. In that. It's so the source. Yeah. yeah. Good it's vetted source. source. Yep. I think, uh, you know, I mean, if there's one thing and there's so many things that I, you know, with a with an institute uh, like PCI or with a with what PCI is, is um, so much has changed in just use of Facebook and and everything. Uh, I mean, you were amazed at how many groups there were on powder coating. And I swear to you, there's like a new one started every every week. But uh, there are some that are more participatory or more active than others. Um, and I think Part of what I wanted to convey to Kevin and PCI and just membership in general, and I have talked to Karen from GEMA, who's also on that committee as well, is that uh, the it's users Karen. to uh, Karen, yeah, it's Jerry, yeah, uh, yeah uh, <laughs> is that the users today, especially on platforms, social media platforms that we're all getting used to and on all the time, is that people want that information brought to them. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll ask a question and they want answers. So it's, it's different from forums where you would go and seek, uh, the, you know, your question or submit your question and, and you would look and hunt and find, but today's users are just wanting that information presented to them all the time, you know, just right there. And, and that in itself is kind of difficult for such a, uh, more static 
uh, platform as joining meetings and this and that. So yeah. please consider that um, at PCI because uh, I know you're you're you've been in that involved in that. Um, how are we going to? You know, the educational uh, article that came out in Powder Coated Tough magazine was a valid one, but it's not the only one, um, uh, especially coming from, I guess, the bottom up, if you want to call a group of custom coders from the bottom, yep. um, is just how are we going to engage these people? How are we going to keep the uh, keep their keep the topic relevant for their day-to-day -day problems. Um, so so the, the webinar series that we have with PCI is, is the foundation of a much bigger educational program that's gonna be deliverable through the internet at some point in the future. I can't yeah. I can't address a lot of it, but there are there are education modules that are coming. So yeah. Um, well and, I've and, heard I've heard that. Yeah. And and, and the beauty of that is you know, the receiver can at their leisure at on their schedule absorb the material, right? Yeah. You, you lose a little bit of the interactivity of question and answers when you're doing it that way. Right. But, but we're also studying that, how we can deliver them in a real world situation. So right. real, yeah. real time, I should say, not real, real time. Real time. I think that's a good word to use. Um, because everybody learns at different paces. We all know that. Um, some are visual learners, some need to hear uh, their audio, uh, you know, uh, learn things more that way. Uh, some are very kinetic uh, learners as well. And there needs to be a wide variety and there also needs to be a interactiveness to the point that you know when the, uh, you, when the user or the student um, or the guy with the question actually can grasp, the, you know, and give answer the question, or I don't know what the word is. It's like make sure that they absorb what they just read, heard, or touched. You know what uh, I mean? Oh well. So one of my favorite sayings is, you know, when I when I start a class, I I, I say, okay, I'm going to sit here and talk to you, but you're going to learn more from that guy over there asking a question that I then answer, okay? Or, and, and, and what's inherent in human beings is they're always afraid to ask a question because they're afraid it's gonna be dumb and they're gonna get ridiculed. And, and there is no dumb answer. The dumb answer or the dumb question is the one that doesn't get asked, okay? Right. Because yeah. I guarantee you, if you've got a question, there's at least one other person in that room that's got exactly the same question and he's also afraid to ask it. So, you know, and that's the part of the real time that I think is valuable. Now you can capture that still in a, in a uh, webcast or a podcast, like you just did. We had questions yeah. that were brought up, we addressed them. And I guarantee you every question that was asked through your, through that blog was in somebody else's mind. So, right. I was amazed. I mean, I just looking at that now, I just posted that three hours ago and look uh, how many questions we, we answered or had. When we well, feel free after this that if they come in uh, or send me the link and I'll kind of peek in and out and, and jump in and answer when I can. So, yeah, I'll I'll invite you uh, or I'll figure out some of them you need to be invited to. And then okay. others, you can just go and join. Um, well, but if I'll, you're a member, if, if, you, if you do a screenshot and send it to me, I can get you an answer. And yeah. 
Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Awesome. Well, I know you've got a call coming through from. Yeah, I got to go get a Japan. bite. And I got a, a Zoom call with Japan at seven o'clock Eastern time here. So. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks again, John, for having, you know, coming on the show. I'm sure we're going to maybe have you come back again to talk about some other things, but it's just so good to kind of meet you in person. I know we kind of see each other in the uh, in the Microsoft Teams thing. Yeah, everybody's um, got their cameras turned off. Yeah. So don't actually get to see anybody. So this is great. Keep up the good work. Yeah. I think what you're what you're delivering to the industry is very valuable. And and keep putting experts in front of the camera and doing like you're doing now. It's really well, good. Thank you. Thank yep. you. Thank you. It was good to good to hear that. Thank you. All right. Well, have a great day. Aloha. Thank you. Aloha. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye bye. Bye.